where we are today is we are in the period between the crucifixion and the resurrection, which is where the disciples would have been today. The actual events of this week can match the events in Scripture. I, I am not a guy that believes he was crucified on a Friday. He was either crucified on a Wednesday or a Thursday. And when we get back to doing Midrash, if anybody has any questions about that, I am delighted to go through all of the scriptures and everything else to make that work. But if he's crucified on a Wednesday night, then he's got Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in the tomb, and he raises on Sunday. If he's crucified on a Thursday... He's got Thursday night, Friday, and then Sunday. is So it can be made to work either way. Friday doesn't work. So the thing that says that it could be Thursday is Palm Sunday, which is on the 10th. All right, so why did I choose these three psalms? Well, what you have in Psalm 22 is a graphic description of the crucifixion. They pierced my hands. They divided my clothes among them. They mocked me while I was up on the cross. All of the things that happened in real time, real life with Yeshua are prophesied in Psalm 22. If you skip over to Psalm 24, what you have is Mount Zion. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then the king of glory will come in. So you're talking Mount Calvary in 22, you're talking Mount Zion in 24. Well, if you got two mountains, what do you have between them? A valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So what David did some 1,500 years before the crucifixion is David laid out the exact sequence of what was going to happen. Now, we'll talk a little more about that later as we go on. For those of you who listen to Christian radio, Ron Dart has been doing this week a series on Christian origins. I agree with him about 95% of what he says, and the other 5% would be a really good subject for Midrash. In other words, I'm not saying he's wrong. It's just one of those things that we should wrestle about. Very, very good teacher. Passed away a number of years ago, but really a, a wonderful teacher. And... Right now, we're looking at the church, which has lost its authority. And I want to talk about why the church has lost its authority. We just had the governor of Indiana shut down churches during Easter week. Church of England has shut all of its churches. Except you can still use the building for soup kitchens, for makeshift hospitals. You can use the building for anything except worship. That's literally what they said. Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the head dude in the Church of England. You had the governor of Virginia on Good Friday sign an infanticide bill. He has signed a bill that says abortion is legal right up through delivery, and if the delivery goes well and something happens and the kid's alive, you get to kill it. He signed that on Good Friday. What that tells me is the church has lost its mojo. A hundred years ago, the church wouldn't have put up with any of that nonsense. 501c3 is just one more step in a progress that began within 150 years of the crucifixion. 
And what happened was the church lost track of God's appointed times. Big controversy in the early church. Years ago, I studied it all. But basically the controversy is, oh, well, celebration of the resurrection has to happen on a Sunday. And actually I agree with that. But the problem is the Jewish Passover can happen any day of the week. And the day they choose as first fruits then can be any day of the week. Agree with that. Now let me explain what the problem here is. The problem is nobody who's a Gentile wanted to be a Jew. And so they wanted to separate themselves from being regarded by the empire as simply another sect of Judaism. The Jews, on the other hand, didn't want anything to do with this sect over here that believes in this guy Jesus. So the separation was mutual. But the point is, what happened with the separation is the church, Sunday church, disconnected itself from God's appointed times. And the Shabbat church, the Jews, disconnected themselves from the events of the crucifixion. So both of them went off in separate directions, both of them in error. And what I want to explain to you is why there is no conflict and there should never have been one. So let's start in Genesis 1. Okay, Genesis 1. And I'm reading in verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons. The word there that is translated seasons is moadim, which in the Hebrew means appointed times. So God, from the creation of the place, set it up that he was going to have appointed times. And he set the lights in the heavens so we'd be able to tell when they were. It's that fundamental. Let's go forward to Exodus. Exodus 12, verse 41. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. On what very day? Now, what I will tell you is most people think that the Passover is set by the Exodus. That's wrong. That's exactly backwards. The Exodus is set by God's appointed time that was established 430 years before the event. You understand what I'm saying? It's really fundamental. God has established the time from before the creation. God then makes sure that the events that he wants to have happen, happen on those days. So the Exodus doesn't define the Passover. The Passover defines the Exodus. And there's a question about what happened 430 years before. I believe it is the Genesis 15 covenant that God made with Abraham, where he said, your descendants are going to be in exile and they're going to come out in the fourth generation. I think that's the day. And I think that that covenant was cut between God and Abraham on Passover. Reasonable people can argue. But what you can't argue with is Exodus 12, which says on that very day, 430 years later, that's when they left.
That you can't argue with. You, we can argue about 430 years ago what happened. Could possibly also be the binding of Isaac, which I believe also happened on Passover. So let's look at the next one. John, 1914. Now there's some static, if you will, among the Gospels. I am picking John because John says what I want to say. But the reason I think John is correct is John is a priest. John, I think, is speaking precisely because he's a priest. I think the other guys are speaking culturally. There are specific feasts. There's Passover, which is not a uh, Sabbath. It is not a feast. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then there's first fruits. Those are all very precise times. In popular culture, it all just sort of gets lumped together as Easter season. You understand what I'm saying? So the reason I'm using John is because he's a priest, and I believe he's speaking precisely. So what John said, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And what I am telling you is that day was the 14th of Nisan, which is the day when the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. And the reason Yeshua was sacrificed on that day because that day had been determined by God from the creation of the world. That's when it was going to happen. Just like that's when the exodus was going to happen. Everything happens on God's days that he has ordained. It's really important that you understand this. So now, how do we get to Sunday? Well, it says in Scripture, on the first day of the week. They went to the tomb, and the tomb was opened, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. We're not there yet. We've got a day to go. But the point is, it specifically says on the first day of the week. Now, why is that important? You have to go back to Leviticus 23. When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. The Jews don't see it that way. Again, remember, the Jews are not interested in being involved with this Jesus guy. So the way the Jews read that passage is you have Passover, which is not a Sabbath, you have the first day of unleavened bread, which is a Sabbath. Therefore, the next day is when first fruits happens. That's wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because of the counting of the Omer. You have to count 50 days from the day of first fruits. And then you get to a Sabbath plus one. The only way that works is if you start counting on a Sunday. From my perspective, it is not controversial. But... The Saturday synagogue picks on the day after the beginning of unleavened bread. The Sunday church says it's got to be Sunday. Well, the Sunday church is right. It does have to be Sunday. But they look at the way the Jews do it and say, wait a minute, we've got to disconnect from these Jewish guys because it doesn't always happen on Sunday for them. Now, what has happened here is the church has been cut off from its roots. And it's like a flower. You cut a flower and you put it in a vase. And it's beautiful. And it smells good for about a week. And then it dies. 
The church is beautiful and it smells good for a while, but it's cut off from its roots and it's dying. All of the indignities that have happened over the last 2,000 years are a function of the church disconnected itself from God's appointed times. God goes to very great lengths to make sure that the events that he wants to have happen, happen when he wants to have them happen, and he tells you when those days are, and he tells you what to do on those days, so I'm suggesting it's important. I'm suggesting it's important. And if both sides of the kingdom of God, the Saturday side and the Sunday side, have disconnected themselves from that, both of them lose the nourishment of the root. And that's what we're dealing with today. What we got going on right now in the United States and in fact worldwide is the enemy's running a play. Remember I told you maybe a couple of weeks ago, I went to the World Health Organization website. And it has a place where you can look at all of the outbreaks of plagues and pandemics that have happened for the last, I don't know how many years. And one of the things I discovered is there's always a plague available. What changes is what Satan and his minions decide to do with it. And the panics that happen with the plague correspond to worldly events, elections, those kinds of things. So we had swine flu, we had SARS, we had H1N1, we had Ebola. And there's a panic over those in the news media whenever a panic is useful. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm saying this very precisely. I am not saying the plagues track with when it's useful to Satan. I am saying there's always a plague available, and then Satan makes use of that to spook the sheep whenever he needs to have that happen. And if you look at what's going on in the world, people are dying. I got it. Understand. I'm not saying that there is not a virus floating around. There certainly is. But the death rate is comparable to or less than a seasonal flu. Furthermore, we have created a financial incentive in the United States that a hospital gets more money if they can tag a death to coronavirus. The reimbursement is better if the person dies of coronavirus than if he dies of kidney failure, heart attack, any of those other things. And the White House briefers have said this. I'm not making this up. This is out in the open. They have said if somebody dies with coronavirus, not of coronavirus, but with coronavirus, so you go into the hospital for a heart attack, and you've also got coronavirus and you die, it is chalked up to coronavirus. And if you look at hospitalization rates in the United States, hospitalization for heart attack, kidney failure, all those kind of things have dropped dramatically. It is not the case that those things are not happening. It's the case that what is happening is they're being chalked up to this virus. Like I say, the enemy is running a play. That's what's going on right now. And the target of the play is God's people and the church. All of this stuff is out there and available. I'm not making any of this up. This is not me wearing a tinfoil hat. I am simply giving you data. All right, now, what does that mean to you? First off, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's important that God's people get together 
at God's appointed times, and Shabbat is an appointed time, and we get together and we praise Him and we worship Him, thank you for coming. And those who can't come out in virtual land, thank you for being there. So, we read three Psalms. And what you have is Mount Calvary, which is Passover, and you have Mount Zion, which is another of God's appointed times. Anybody know what it is right off the top of your head? Feast of Trumpets. Yom Teruah. The Feast of Trumpets is blast of a trumpet to announce the coming of the king. Book of Revelation says he will touch down on the seventh trumpet. There was a rehearsal for that at Jericho. When God's people under Yeshua, Joshua, go in to take the land back from the enemy, they march around the city seven times, and then they shout, Teruah. And they blow the trumpet and the walls fall flat and God's people under the command of Yeshua, Joshua, go in and begin to dispossess the enemy. I will tell you without stutter, stammer, or equivocation, just like it says in Revelation, just like it was rehearsed at Jericho, Yeshua is coming back on Yom Teruah. I don't know what year, okay? I don't know what year. But he's done everything else on one of God's appointed times, and I see no reason whatsoever why he's going to change. I'm not setting dates. I'm not doing any of that. I have no idea what year he's going to decide to do that. But what he's done is every one of God's appointed times, that's a marker in the life, ministry, and behavior of the Messiah. And it's set from back in Genesis. There's no surprises. There's no, oh, shoot, it's almost that time. What are we going to do now? No. None of that's true. He has got the time set. They are set in the stars. And by the way, another really great study that we've done in Midrash is if you look at the Zodiac, it tells the story of Yeshua. From the virgin birth all the way up to the slaying of the dragon. It's all written in the stars, and it has been there from the creation. None of this is any surprise to God. So, that brings us to the valley. Got Mount Calvary on one side, and that's when he was crucified, died, and was buried, and tomorrow his resurrection on the Feast of Firstfruits, which is listed in Leviticus thousands of years before the actual event. 1,500 years before the actual event. It's no surprise. So we have Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. We have unleavened bread, Passover. What's in between? Shavuot, Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? We are standing in the valley in front of the mountain when God comes down and he gives us his word to guide us, to care for us, to walk with us as we go through this valley that we're in. Remember, nobody except Moses goes up on that mountain. We're down in the valley. And what he does is he gives us first his written Torah, and then 1,500 years later, he gives us his Holy Spirit, both of whom walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And notice it's the shadow of death. It is not death itself. Because depending on when Yeshua decides to light things off on a feast of trumpets, it is entirely possible that we all may physically die. But it's a shadow death. It is not a forever death. 
It is a death that's awaiting a resurrection, and the resurrection will happen when he touches down on Mount Zion. You understand why I read those three psalms today? We're walking through the valley right now, and people have been walking through the valley for thousands of years. And the deal here is understand that you are between two mountains. God is not upset. He's not worried. He's not panicking. He's not afraid of anything. He has set this in motion from the creation. And it will play out just exactly as he wants it to play out. Exactly when he wants it to play out. So, I'm going to leave you with another scripture. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 16. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for his purpose. I have also created the destroyer to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall prosper, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, says Jehovah. Your heritage. What did you say? Heritage? Do you ever hear the word heritage? Because we are brothers of Yeshua, because he was born as one of us, because he gave us the right to become children of God. Read the book of Hebrews if you don't get that. Because of that, we have an inheritance. We have a heritage. And our heritage is, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you do condemn. That's your heritage while you're in the valley. Once we get out of the valley, then we got a different heritage. So what I'm telling you is go out and claim your heritage. Be not afraid. Do what it is that you think Yeshua would have you do in this time. You are doing the things that God asks us to do on the days that he asks us to do it. You are not disconnected from the root. You are not a cut flower in a vase that's going to wither. You are connected to the root because you're doing things that God would have you do on the days that he has you do them. So go out and claim your heritage.